I'm Michael Shoulder, and this is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Once upon a time, there lived a girl with a magic book. The girl's name was Rachel, Rachel Held Evans. Her magic book was the Bible. Then one day, the story began to unravel. The girl was older now, with a mature and curious mind, and she noticed something she hadn't before. As Rachel grew up, she began to question the magic. And then... She found herself wondering, is the magic of the book really divine blessing, or is it, in truth, a curse? And that's when the adventure really began. The real-life adventures of Rachel Held Evans led her to become what one headline called the voice of the wandering evangelical, a self-described doubt-filled believer who challenged many traditional evangelical ideas, including those that have kept women out of church leadership. I have a very uh, religious uh, background, but my parents were never fundamentalists. Like they were always willing to say, I don't know when I had a question and they always lived with a lot of grace and um, room for disagreement. Rachel Held Evans built a significant following with her blog and as the author of four books on Christianity. Her most recent, which begins with that girl and the magic book, is entitled Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. For the past few weeks, her fans have been closely following a terrible turn in Ms. Evans' health. This past weekend, Rachel Held Evans died in a Nashville hospital. She was only 37. What follows is the conversation she and I had at CNN in December 2012, shortly after the publication of her provocative and entertaining book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. As you'll hear, Ms. Evans has a wonderful sense of humor, as well as a deep appreciation for Jewish tradition. I happen to be Jewish and the son of a stand-up comic. I like to remember this conversation as a bridge between the Bible Belt and the Borscht Belt. Rachel, just give us a little background on who you are and the mission you undertook, which took a lot of discipline. Sure, sure. Well, you know, growing up in the conservative evangelical subculture in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Dayton, Tennessee, I had always heard about biblical womanhood. And biblical womanhood was presented to me as this ideal to which all women should strive and should work for. But the problem was nobody could seem to agree on exactly what biblical womanhood was. And more often than not, people were appealing to biblical womanhood to explain why women should be forbidden from taking leadership positions in the church, forbidden from working outside of the home. And so as I started to wrestle with that as a young adult, I began to see that, you know, we weren't really... None of no women were actually practicing biblical womanhood all the way that that phrase was really reductive to both the Bible and to women. And as somebody who loves the Bible, I hate to see it used to silence women and to to keep women in their place. And so I decided to try to take a page from A.J. Jacobs. Uh, He wrote the year of living biblically. I decided to do a year of biblical womanhood just to show that no woman is practicing biblical womanhood 100 percent. So maybe we should cut one another a little bit of slack. And so uh, what was the how, how did you break it down and what was what was your first primary mission? Yeah, well, my mission was just to to make people laugh mostly and to laugh at our uh, our own 
little foibles when it comes to interpreting scripture and how really none of us are, are practicing literalism and, and to, to have fun with the text a little bit and have fun with my interpretation of the text. So I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to make women laugh especially and to just to, to be kinder to one another and to ourselves because you, since none of us are practicing biblical womanhood all the way and then to just kind of deconstruct the whole idea, de- de- deconstruct this notion of biblical womanhood. So I focused on a different virtue each month and these are virtues that are presented in the Bible or virtues that are perceived to be in the Bible and try to practice things related to those. So I try to take all of the Bible's instructions for women as literally as possible during that year. So that meant I had to cover my head whenever I prayed. I had to grow out my hair because the Apostle Paul says that a woman, it is a woman's glory if she has long hair, but I'm convinced he would not have written that if he had seen how bad my hair looked after a year without a haircut. I observed the Levitical purity laws that make me ceremonially unclean for a total of 12 days uh, during my period and seven days after, which meant I couldn't touch any men during that time at all, not even my husband. And I had to sit on a little stadium cushion that I carried around with me because the Bible says that anything a woman sits on during that time will be considered unclean. So I was always doing some kind of crazy uh, activity, always starting quite a few conversations among my friends, but I tried to organize it by focusing on a different virtue each month, mostly to keep myself from having to do some of these things all year. So some things I did all year, most things I tried just once. So like calling my husband master, that was something I only did for one week. <laughs> so, so let me ask you something that in terms of the takeaway then, was there something you experienced based on your literal living of what the Bible was asking you to do? Is there anything that you are going to take with you into the future now as you proceed with your life? Oh, yeah, there were several things like that. Uh, one month I focused on charity and justice, and it made us re-examine some of our spending habits as consumers, like what we were bringing into the house and what we were throwing away. And, and so we've made some adjustments to try and buy more fair trade and think more deliberately about that. And then one month I focused on silence, and I wanted to look at both the ways in which the Bible has been used to silence women, but also the ways in which silence can be a good thing, because there's a big difference between being silenced and silencing oneself. And so I went to a Benedictine monastery and studied silence for a weekend. And as an introvert, that was like going to Disneyland. It was wonderful. And so I've really been trying to practice nurturing that contemplative impulse that I've always had. And and the project pushed me to do that. So there were plenty of things that I decided to, to try and carry over into my regular life, even after the project was over. Because, you know, just because the Bible is ancient, just because the Bible is old, doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. The trick is just figuring out, uh, and each of us does this a little bit differently, which parts apply and how they are, ought to apply. So, you know, now, now you started by saying, so you grew up in an evangelical community, and I think in, you know, in the media especially, we use the word evangelical, we talk about it during, poli- but during political season. Define for me in your words, because it's not, not a monolithic definition, but how would you define your conservative evangelical upbringing? Yeah, yeah. And I still, I don't mind identifying as an evangelical, even though I think a lot of people don't realize just how diverse evangelicalism is. We don't all vote the same way. We don't all think the same way. So I'm I'm much more to the left when it comes to politics. And uh, I don't always fit in with my fellow evangelicals in that regard. But I'm more conservative when it comes to things like a literal resurrection and that sort of thing. So for me, evangelical, the word actually comes from the word evangel, which just means the the gospel. And so an evangelical to me is anyone who's passionate about 
teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I certainly am. And so as as the gospel of Jesus Christ relates to women today, what, how would you promote that differently today after your experience of this past year than you would have yeah. before you started this experiment? Well, you know, what helps me, and the Bible's difficult to read and interpret, and I struggle with it all the time, but what helps is, as a Christian, I look to Christ, and when Jesus was asked what's the most important elements of the law, he said, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that on those two commands hang all the rest of the law and prophets. So that seems to be Jesus's definition of biblical, loving God and loving your neighbor. And so as a woman, uh, when I look to the Bible and I try to figure out, well, how does this apply to my life today? Well, how am I to interpret this? I try to read and interpret through the lens of Christ and ask, how does this help me love God better? How does this help me love my neighbor better? And and that's the best rubric I've found for biblical interpretation as a Christian and as a woman. Well, now, in, in terms of the, the specific sacrifices you made and the laws and the rules, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, I, I found it actually quite interesting how much Judaism you had in the book. And certainly you, you drew on the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, uh, you know, there, there's a, actually there's an old joke I want to tell you. So the, a Jewish guy comes home to his mother and says, and he's been dating a Christian girl. He says, I'm going to marry her. And the mother is not happy. She says, you know, I think you should marry a Jewish girl. He says, no, you don't understand, mom. She's going to convert to Judaism. And the mother says, I don't care. It's not the same. I want you to marry a Jewish girl. He goes ahead with the marriage. She converts. And like many converts to any religion, she becomes extremely observant. And she does many of the things you did in this book. And she covered her head. And she observed the Sabbath strictly. And she kept strict kosher that he couldn't even have his favorite lobster dish when he went out the house. He went to his mother and complained about this and told him about all the things his wife was doing. She said, I told you to marry a Jewish girl. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's so true. I learned so much from the Jewish community during this project, and it was so helpful. I remember thinking, why have I not been consulting Jewish commentaries before now? Like, you guys have had access to the Bible for longer than Christians has. You know, have you probably have something to add to it. Well, let, let me ask you then. Uh, you know, I actually call, because of the fact that there there is so much Judaism in your book, I called my rabbi here in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Rabbi Peter Berg at the, the famous temple here. And I said, well, you know, I told him about your book and is there anything he wants to know from you? Uh, and he, he asked, you know, what, what have you learned from this experience that you can transpose for today's life? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of things. I think especially from the the Jewish side of things, I learned a lot about marking sacred time. I practiced all the Jewish holidays, which are a brilliant idea. I love the idea of having to drink four glasses of wine for Passover. Um, but just marking out sacred time, whether that's the Sabbath or whether it's the holidays. And then one thing I loved about the Jewish holidays was that we, every item of food on the table represented something and gave us the chance to retell the story like of the Exodus for Passover. And um, it, I really came to appreciate that the importance of marking sacred time. And I think, like you're saying, in our highly connected um, social networking world, this marking out of sacred time seems like something of a lost art, particularly when it comes to Sabbath and that sort of thing. So that's one thing I took away that I, I've been toying with exploring maybe even more in my next book, just because it was so meaningful to me and such a 
such a fantastic experience. And that is one thing that I carried over. And then something that I hope he would also appreciate is coming out of the year, just realizing the importance of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbors yourself. Uh, you know, that's something that both Christians and Jewish folks can agree on is really the essence of our scripture. And so, um, trying to prioritize love in how I read the Bible and in how I interact with people. This whole experiment was a good reminder of the supremacy of love when it comes to interpretation, biblical interpretation, but also how I'm supposed to live with God and with my neighbors. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, reading this and, and not being a, by any means an expert on the Bible, it, it, it was a reminder. If this were the only book on religion that I had ever read, I would think, you know, Judaism and Christianity, it overlaps enormously. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, they do. L- but let me ask you this, because as, as, as you've alluded to, you know, people have differing opinions on this. Uh, have you gotten specific feedback from the more conservative segments of the evangelical community? And have, are there people out there who really don't appreciate your humor and your take on this? And what, what has that been like? Yes, there, there's a decent contingency of folks out there who are very unhappy that I have <laughs> written a book about biblical womanhood, mainly because they've been appealing to biblical womanhood to explain why they forbid women from taking leadership in their churches. And the fact that I kind of deconstructed that term has in a lot of ways taken away one of their most um, useful weapons. Because <laughs> uh, when a woman is told you can't do this or you can't do that, often the appeal is to biblical womanhood. And so the, that contingency of people, um, they're, they identify as complementarians in the um, evangelical world. They've not been particularly pleased with the book and they've issued several critiques. And, and you know, and some of them are worthy critiques. And, and it's a very... Uh, you know, diverse movement. And so it was hard to capture exactly what, you know, what they all think and all believe, but I have gotten quite a bit of pushback. And the most frustrating thing is I had really hoped that this would lead to a good conversation about biblical interpretation and what does biblical womanhood really mean. But a lot of them have just shut down the conversation from the beginning by accusing me of hating the Bible. (laughs) So many of these reviews start off with this, clearly this woman hates the Bible. Clearly this woman wants to mock the Bible. And I really think that anybody who reads the book can sense that my love of scripture is part of what inspired me to do this and that I really love and esteem the Bible and I really want to faithfully interpret and apply it. And that's why I did this. So that's been probably the most frustrating thing about their critiques is that rather than really engaging me on our differences regarding interpretation, they've simply shut me down by saying, you don't love the Bible, you don't care about the Bible, you hate the Bible, and, you know, or you mock, you're mocking the Bible, when really, I think if the joke is on anyone, you know, with some of my more playful interpretations, it's on us as interpreters. Uh, I think we're all imperfect interpreters of Scripture, and I hope that if we can't laugh about that, then I think we're in big trouble. Is, is there one critique you got that you felt, but boy, this, this is a fair and tough critique, and here's how I've got to respond to it? Yeah, I think the probably the most fair critique I hear is that I didn't represent the the evangelical complementarian every shade of the compliment evangelical complementarian movement. I tried to quote the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I tried to you know they're sort of their flagship organizations, but it is a very diverse group, and you know I just couldn't cover every expression of it and and, but I wanted to be fair so if I've misrepresented 
that group, you know, I, I do want to try to correct that somehow. But again, I think it's always hard to fully represent all the nuances of a movement that we're not a part of, especially when we're trying to critique some of the more problematic elements of that movement. So, you know, if there's some way that I can more faithfully represent their views, I want to make sure I do that. But, you know, it wasn't, I, I tried to take, get a lot of people's take on biblical womanhood, not just conservative evangelicals. You know, I consulted an Orthodox Jew. I went to Amish country and spoke to the Amish folks there. I interviewed a polygamist family. So, you know, I, I tried to give time to each of those. And I understand why some groups are frustrated that I wasn't able to fully flesh out all the nuances of their movement. But there is, a time constraint issue that you have to be aware of. So, you know, it's, I think it's always hard to faithfully represent other people's views. And I did my best to do that, to do that well, but I'm sure there's some, everybody's got an opinion about what biblical womanhood is. (laughs) So uh, there's going to be people who just feel like I didn't do it right. And that's okay. And I'm definitely, I wanted this book to be a conversation starter, So I'm really open to hearing those critiques and to engaging in those conversations. As long as we don't, you know, resort to this whole, well, you hate the Bible thing. That to me is a real turnoff, but I'm really open to constructive criticism. Okay. Before we leave you, because, you know, for those of you who do follow you, but really don't know that much about you personally. So you grew up in a conservative evangelical environment. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What did your parents do? What did they, what values did they try to instill? And at some point it seems you had some kind of a transformation because your subtitle here is how a liberated woman found herself sitting on her roof, covering her head and calling her husband master. But you know, that whole sense of humor about this and the fact that you are a what you consider a liberated woman. Uh, I mean, that was not necessarily your destiny given your upbringing, correct? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama for the first part of my life and then Dayton, Tennessee um, as a teenager and young adult. And Dayton, Tennessee, some people will recognize as the home of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. And in fact, this is where the phrase Bible Belt was coined. So I have a very uh, religious uh, background. But my parents were never fundamentalists. Like they were always willing to say, I don't know when I had a question. And they always lived with a lot of grace and um, room for disagreement. And so I always felt like I had a lot of freedom at home. But sometimes when I went to church or when I went to school, I was told that as a woman, I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that. I'll never forget. I gave a testimony to my youth group when I was in high school. And it was a good testimony. You know, I, I rocked it if I don't say so myself, you know, and every evangelical should be able to give a testimony. And I gave a great testimony in front of all my classmates. And I sat down and one of my classmates, a guy... Wait, 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 wait. What what was the testimony? Oh, you know, just the testimony is how you came to know Jesus. And so I talked about growing up in the church, but then re-encountering Jesus as a teenager and, and really committing my life to Jesus. You know, the... The kind of thing that you should end with just as I am or something like that and tears. And so I gave the testimony and I sat down and I had done a good job. And and one of my classmates turned to me and he was a guy and he said, that was a great testimony. He said, you're a great speaker. Too bad you're a girl. Because he knew that as a woman, my options in the church when it came to leadership and teaching would be limited. Because in that culture that I grew up in, women were forbidden from teaching from the pulpit. They were forbidden from assuming 
leadership positions in the church. And so I didn't really get that from my parents. My, my, my mom was a very, you know, she's a very opinionated, strong, thoughtful woman. And, and so I never felt like in our home, she was less than, but when I went out into church, when I went to school, I always felt like as a woman, I had this handicap because I couldn't, I couldn't teach and lead how I might feel called to. And so I had to, as a young adult, re-examine some of those teachings, see where they were coming from. And and then I kind of came to my own realization that um, based on how Jesus treated women, based on what I found in scripture, that women should certainly feel free to teach and to lead and to share the gospel. But going back to what that boy was saying, because I have two daughters, and if, if I heard that some boy said that to them, I would be going to that institution and saying, okay, somebody's got, got to set somebody straight here. I mean, did you, what did you say back to that boy? Did you go tell your parents? Did you try to change that? Or did you just accept it as, hey, that's part of the landscape? I just accepted it because I, I, I knew exactly what he was saying when he said that. I knew that because I, I, as I had always heard that and, you know, as a kid, I never saw a woman preaching from the pulpit. I never saw women in church leadership. And and so it, it, he what he said seemed to be right to me. I didn't really even think to question it until, you know, young adulthood. And that happened that happened at a time when I was questioning a lot of the other things <laughs> that I had been taught um, in church and in school. I was in a um, went to a very conservative evangelical college. And so I was questioning some of what I'd been taught about, you know, young earth creationism and science and biblical interpretation. And so that kind of just got caught up in that whole crisis of faith that I experienced in my 20s. As a lot of people experience, I think a lot of people, when you grow up in one faith tradition, when you hit your 20s, you just start to ask questions about that faith tradition. I think that's a really healthy thing to experience. And throughout that, my parents, I must say my parents, my immediate family have been incredibly supportive. And they know that where we might disagree when it comes to politics or science or even womanhood, we agree on the important things of faith. And that's for Christians, that's that Christ died, Christ has risen and Christ will come again. What, 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 what does your father do for a living? And, and what was he saying during these teenage years? Uh, he's, he teaches at Bryan College here in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, named after William Jennings Bryan, who was uh, the prosecutor in the Scopes trial. So lots of history there. And he has always been incredibly encouraging. And he and my mom always modeled a really healthy relationship for me. And so they, you know, and, and again, like we sometimes disagree on the finer points of theology and the finer points of politics, but they've just never made those issues of contention or issues that would in some way divide us. Um, so, I mean, we don't always agree on every thing, but they, we agree on the important things. So did you always have this level of confidence that I'm hearing from you right now? Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's just, no. <laughs> and I still don't always feel confident. And I still feel like I have a lot to learn about my faith, about what it means to be a woman of faith. Um, I'm constantly learning new things from different people of different traditions. And so I still feel like I'm early in my growing and learning process when it comes to faith and that there's, there's a lot left to learn and a lot to go. So, um, you know, I'm confident. One thing I am confident in is that the God esteems and loves women and, and that, um, Anyone who would use the Bible to try and keep women down, to put women in their place, 
uh, is wrong, <laughs> that that's not how the Bible should be used. And so I have grown very confident in my position that uh, women are called to teach and to lead and to glorify God in whatever position they may find themselves in. And and so I'm certainly confident about that <laughs> more than I used to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the title again of your book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, and I have to figure through your exploration, you discovered a little bit about what a year of biblical manhood would be like. Uh, and did you discover anything about that? Uh, well, a little bit. And, you know, A.J. Jacobs wrote his book, The Year of Living Biblically, which in some ways is an exploration of that because and in some ways was more a little more complicated because he tried to you know follow everything the Bible had to say, literally, whereas I was focusing just on womanhood. So that but in some ways, I, I suspect that simplified it for me a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's part of what's so problematic about the whole conversation as I see it, especially in evangelicalism, is is trying to define manhood and trying to define womanhood well what what does that mean exactly and you know that that can lead into all kinds of conversations complicated conversations with people and feminists disagree about what that means non-feminists disagree about what that means I mean it's and so and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to tackle the project was because the Bible does not present a single monolithic view of manhood or a single monolithic view of womanhood. Really, if, if anything, I think we should be talking about personhood. And that's when we go back to the love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. To me, that's biblical personhood. That's the, And that's what we should all aspire to. And how that works itself out differently between men and women is less important than how that's going to work itself out differently among different people. Um, cause I, you know, people will say, oh, are you just saying you want to be treated like a man? Well, no, I just want to be treated like me. I want to be treated like Rachel, you know, not, and not like a woman or like a man, just like Rachel. And, and that seems to be difficult for people to grasp for some reason. They want to say, well, since you're a woman, you should be good at this, that, this, and that. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I'm, I'm really terrible at multitasking, you know, and that's kind of assumed to be a, a womanhood trait, but it's not true for me. Um, so I'd really like to, especially in religious circles, move past this whole <laughs> all men have to be this way or all women have to be that way. One of the organizations I, I dealt with during the project was a group called True Womanhood. Well, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, it, it's and everybody disagrees on what that means. It just seems like we should be focusing more on personhood. Uh, who we are as individuals, because I think and I think God is most glorified when we are truly ourselves and we allow God to work through us as us, not as some sort of trying to fit into some kind of mold for what a true woman is or a true man is. That was Rachel Held Evans from our conversation in 2012. About a year and a half later, in 2014, Evans left the Evangelical Church. She explained her decision this way. Rather than wearing out my voice and calling for an end to evangelicalism's culture wars, I think it's time to focus on finding and creating church among its many refugees. Women called to ministry, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, science lovers, doubters, dreamers, misfits, abuse survivors, those who, as she put it, refuse to choose between their intellectual integrity and their faith, or their compassion and their religion those who have, for whatever reason, been farewelled. Ms. Evans and her husband Dan have two young children. She began writing her latest book, Inspired, shortly after the birth of their son in 2016, and finished it a year ago, 
about three weeks before the birth of their daughter. Rachel Held Evans, the girl with a magic book. Inspired. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.